I'm Jessica Peresta, host of the Elementary Music Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Angela Bowers, PhD. She has been in private practice as a licensed psychologist for over three decades. Today we're focused on therapy, uh, what it is and how it can help. And Angela's book, Overcoming, where she shares a woman's triumph over trauma. Awesome book, awesome conversation. Thanks so much for joining me. And it would be so cool if you went to my website, stevenmaletter.com slash reviews and uh, left a review. Could you do that for me? That'd be so cool. You know, say a few nice words and how about five stars? Hmm? <laughs> Thanks so much. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. For the client, I think therapy needs to be a place where a person is feeling safe, but also it's different than talking from a, uh, with a friend because with a friend, you can get advice. It may or may not be great advice, but a therapist should be able to confront the client in a kind way when the thinking is askew or when they're about to make decisions that are just really not in their best interest, which a friend might not always do. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up the tin and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Dr. Angela Glasser-Bowers has been in private practice as a licensed psychologist for over three decades in Scottsdale, Arizona, helping thousands of individuals and couples to heal, grow, and live vibrant lives. She's the author of the book, Overcoming. Dr. Bowers received her PhD in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology in Los Angeles. Prior to this, she earned a master's degree in clinical community psychology from California State University at Fullerton. She taught courses in behavior modification and abnormal psychology at California State University while working on her PhD. She was also a licensed marriage and family counselor at the time. Dr. Bowers has received advanced training in clinical hypnosis and has produced several CDs for anxiety management, surgical healing, and enhanced fertility. She has studied yoga and meditation extensively and has led many yoga meditation retreats for women over the last two decades. She continues to maintain an active private practice, meeting clients as young as six to individuals in their 90s. She enjoys helping people from all walks of life and is continually challenged to provide state-of-the-art therapy for couples, families, and individuals. In her free time, she is enthusiastic about hiking, kayaking, yoga, weightlifting, pickleball, traveling, painting, reading, and gathering with friends. She has three adult children who live in Colorado and Arizona. Born in Berlin, Germany, she moved to a small town in southern Illinois. She then moved to attend high school in Clayton, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. After graduating from the University of New Hampshire, she relocated to Los Angeles. She moved to Scottsdale, Arizona after completing her Ph.D. and has resided there since 84. A little bit about overcoming. Overcoming shares the remarkable story of one woman's triumph over trauma and details how unconventional approaches by her psychologists and their incredible bond helped her reclaim her life and flourish. Angela, thanks so much for being on the show today. Say hi to everyone. Yes, hello. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, I'm glad you're here. And uh, let's let's start by talking a little bit about uh, therapy and so forth. So uh, before we get to your book, Overcoming. Uh, so Talk a little about your background in providing therapy. I mean, I've read a little bit about it. I mean, what do you like about helping people? 
Well, I love helping people because it makes my life so much more meaningful to know that I can make a difference in other people's lives. And so, uh, you know, therapy is a, a very personal, intimate experience. And so um, in terms of why I do it, it's because I think having relationships of meaning and purpose can definitely uh, provide guidance and um, and enhance a person's life, especially when they're facing very difficult decisions or or life-changing decisions that they might need to make. Very nice. I mean, it, so can you talk just a little bit about what it's like to participate in therapy? Because after all, if all you have to have you just be around for a while and uh, TV shows it a whole kinds of different ways, movie shows it different ways. Yes, I mean, yes, <laughs> yes, I know. And sometimes I'll watch a TV show and think, oh my gosh, that therapist is terrible. <laughs> or, or I'll be really impressed with some of the lines that the therapists have. You know, therapy is one of those things that for me, I feel as a therapist, very privileged to be on the inside of so many people's lives and thoughts and, and what have you. But for the, for the client, I think therapy needs to be a place where a person is feeling safe, but also it's different than talking from a, uh, with a friend because with a friend, you can get advice. It may or may not be great advice, but a therapist should be able to confront the client in a kind way when the thinking is askew or when they're about to make decisions that are just really not in their best interest, which a friend might not always do. And so I think that that a therapist and a client's relationship goes far beyond what might be considered a friendship, yet there's also elements of being very connected like one would be with a friend. That's so awesome. I mean, because, you know, there's so many things that uh, can be troublesome to us that, uh, you know, oftentimes, you know, if, if you're like me, you just, try and stick it out and don't, uh, you know, um, don't involve doctors and stuff like that. And next thing you know is you're uh, sitting in the hospital for some reason, um, you know, and it, no, uh, no kidding. I mean, what you're describing is that a lot of times people want to keep things to themselves, but then it, it adds such a layer of stress. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of times people, especially, I guess, men are a little bit more, uh, maybe conservative about how much personal stuff they share with their friends. I think women tend to, to be a little bit more open emotionally. And so um, I have a, a fair amount of men in my practice, especially right now, men in their mid forties to mid fifties who are dealing with so much stress and they don't want to quote burden anyone. So then they'll come in here and sort of unload and talk about some of the things that are impacting them. And a lot of times I'll say, well, have you discussed this with your wife? And they'll frequently say, well, actually, no, I haven't. And of course, I encourage them to. But I think a lot of times, to your point earlier, uh, people are sometimes reluctant to share what's going on inside. Well, you got that right. That's, uh, you know, uh, let's kind of talk about some of the ways that a therapist could help. I mean, think about some of the real challenging situations that happen. Talk about not wanting to talk to your friends and mm -hmm. so forth, or to your, your spouse. Um, you know, I can only imagine some of the most challenging patients, even when the individual is, you know, fighting things like self-doubt and frustration um, that, uh, you know, how can a therapist help this when they're, they're struggling with these types of things? Well, first of all, I think a therapist who's well-trained can help a person understand the, the root cause of where their self-doubt comes from. And as you, I'm sure, uh, know, from your own life experience, or maybe um, talking to others, that so many of our our self doubts and low self esteem 
come from the way we were parented and the early life experiences that we've had, whether it's with our parents or with teachers. Um, and so I think that that's part of it is exploring that. But, you know, I'm one of those therapists. I, I call myself a cognitive behavioral therapist. I don't stay in dwelling on a person's past too long, only to understand where it came from. And then once you understand that, then um, the thing that that's, I think one of the most helpful things is helping a person understand their thinking and how they can change their thinking because so many of our thoughts contribute to our depression or our anxiety. It's not the event itself. It's how we interpret the event that makes us feel those emotions. And that's where a therapist can really help somebody sort through those kinds of dynamics. Gotcha. The, uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, I you know, I, I joked about it at the beginning, but I am one of those people that, uh, you know, except for when I was in the army where they force you to see all the doctors, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, uh, uh, medical doctors I was only seeing, um, because I had to, then once I get out of there, you know, you kind of deal with whatever it is, you know, I, uh, if I'm going to, if I have a pain or something like this, I'm going to, you know, I don't know, don't tough it out, right? Right. Tough it out. Don't, yeah. if it hurts when you touch there, don't touch there, that type of thing, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, I think that there's a certain vulnerability to going into therapy that perhaps a lot of people don't want to confront. Um, and maybe also people still have the mistaken notion that going to see a therapist is weak or, um, you know, somehow uh, implies that they don't have strong character. None of that is true. I think I have a, a sign on my wall here in the office that uh, it's a very uh, creative sign that says courage. And I think it takes a lot of courage to come into therapy and to be open about what's going on in your life. And and not everybody's willing to do that. Yeah, that's, I can understand. I mean, it's, you know, one of the things I was, was going to ask you about was, you know, what advice would you have to somebody who is, you know, they're worried about going to therapy because of what their friends or colleagues might think that uh, there's something, you know, there's, there is a, you know, there is a problem in some of the, in some companies and uh, the military is one of these that went through this and may still be going through this, where if you, if it was found out that you went to a therapist, that they might be um, worried about what, what was wrong. And uh, I know, I think you're right. And, you know, I, I was just talking with some colleagues of mine, recently who were in the military. And I think that that is probably still somewhat of an issue. Um, but though for those people that are uh, civilians who are worried about what their friends and family might think, um, well, a couple things come to mind. First of all, I think therapy is much more accepted these days than, than even five or 10 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of uh, even online therapy these days and you hear lots of ads for them. People on podcasts are talking about their own therapy a lot. Um, so I think it's much more accepted. But, you know, it's also one of those things that if at first it feels really vulnerable to share, hey, I'm going to therapy, well, then maybe you'll be selective about who you share it with. If you think that people are going to make fun of you or somehow think lesser of you because you're seeking consultation from a professional, maybe those aren't the people that you necessarily want to have uh, in your inner circle that would know that you're in therapy at that time. I think it's just um, one of those things that would be important for you to use discrimination as to how much you share. So important. So important. I, I think that's, uh, I, you know, it's, it, it's just interesting because grown adults thinking that uh, there might be some problem with it as opposed to how it could help them <laughs> going the other direction. So. These days, um, 
I mean, even sports figures are much more open about their depression or their anxiety and how they sought therapy. And certainly a lot of uh, people in the in Hollywood, people who are public figures have talked about therapy. So I think the stigma of going to therapy has really changed a lot. And I don't think it's nearly what it used to be. Gotcha. Very cool. Uh, all right, let's, let's switch gears. Let's talk about your book. It's called Overcoming. Um, yes. Give, us a, give the audience a short blurb about what it's about. Give them a commercial for it. Okay. Well, Overcoming is a book about a client of mine and my relationship with her and how she was able to be uh, helped over time. And, you know, that might sound kind of dry and boring, but it's anything but. She was a very incredibly uh, complicated case. And uh, she was dragged into therapy by her boss, who basically said, if you don't get help, you're out. We're going to fire you. So she was she was brought into my office under threat of being fired. And um, when I first met her, the uh, the circumstances around meeting her were very unusual for a therapist. And so what I did in this book is I um, I talked about my, the case with uh, with the audience in terms of the reader. But I also included all of her writings to me so that her story unfolds both from her perspective and mine, my perspective as her therapist, her perspective as my client and some of her her thoughts and concerns about being in therapy. So it's a really interesting way to understand what therapy is like, but also to get sort of in the head spaces of me as her therapist and of, of Emma as my client. Um, the other the other reason I wrote the book is because the client in this story had so many challenges that I thought, you know, almost anybody can relate to them. So, for example, she came in with major depressive disorder. She had what's known as complex PTSD. She had had childhood sexual abuse, abandonment. She had substance abuse disorder, um, se- severe neglect, lack of self-esteem. And so the, my thinking was, well, there are enough issues that we worked on that regardless of who reads this book, they're going to be able to identify with her on some aspect. And so um, that's essentially why I wrote Overcoming. It was a compelling story that I just felt needed to be told. Awesome. I, okay, so I have to ask this because obviously there's you, you have enough uh, passion for, for this subject to make the book happen. Cause I mean, a lot of people say they're going to write a book cause I mean, but uh, it never happens and, and you're just having published and uh, it's out there. So what is that driving force that made you say, I got to get this done? When I first met her, I knew that she was a client like no other just from the very beginning. And so um, uh, as the years unfolded and I worked with her, I thought in the back of my mind, you know, someday, this might be a story that should be told. But then I sort of parked it for a while and, you know, went on with my career and have continued to see hundreds, if not thousands of other people in between my work with her and now. And then the pandemic hit and uh, work slowed down, even though we were online, there were some gaps in my schedule and I had more time and I thought, okay, now's the time. And here's the interesting thing. And this may sound a little strange, but I felt like the book wrote itself. I got all my notes out and I started organizing them in sequential order. And believe it or not, the book was written in two months. It just flowed out of me. It's almost like 
it was sitting there just waiting to come out. And so I wrote the book in two months, but what took so long was finding a publisher. And then of course I had to get her permission to write the book, which she gave me right away. But then her, um, her legal counsel said, look, you can't really release this book without reading the book yourself, which made sense. And so it took a year for her to read the book. And so even though I wrote the book in 2020, it wasn't until the end of 2021 where she finally had read the book and um, then I was able to move forward with the publication process. So one of the things I want to take you back to is something that you've you said, and then uh, we've come forward and it's kind of been mentioned again, but I just want to point out something to the audience, which is that overcoming um, is you have the voice of you, the therapist, yeah. and you have the voice of the patient, Emma. Um, so what was that like writing that? I mean, to, I mean, I know you said it kind of flows, but at the same time where you have to. It was like a dialogue, really. It was me describing what had happened. And then I would include her writings. And sometimes it was a reflection of one of our sessions or other times it would be questions that she was too embarrassed to ask me in the session. So she would ask me outside of the session and then I would answer her back. So it was a dialogue between the two of us, but you know, it was an overcoming not only of her issues and her challenges, but mine as well, because as a therapist, I was so challenged by some of the, some of the things that happened in our therapy and some of the severity of her, of her problems that I had to overcome my, some of my own doubts, you know, can I help her? Is this really going anywhere? And then um, I did some unconventional things as a therapist that some very traditionally trained therapists would think, my gosh, she's lost her mind. Um, <laughs> but it really, I think in the end, probably saved her life. And so there was an overcoming that happened not only from her, but also my own overcoming. Well, that's awesome. That's uh, that has to be, uh, I don't know when you're, when you're working with somebody having, I mean, I, the ability to tell yourself that it's okay to be a little unconventional. Is that, is that a good way to say it? It is. And, and I was at that point, I had already been a therapist for over 20 years. And so I felt confident in my judgment about how far I could push the boundaries. I was never unethical, but I definitely did things as a therapist that a lot of other therapists would not do. Um, as the books come out and I've received feedback, I have gotten some great feedback. I've received feedback from therapists who've told me that they too have done some of the things that I did, but they'd never tell anybody that they admired the fact that I actually came forward and, and described some of these things. That's very cool. Uh, yeah. You know, one of the, um, one of the things that uh, you talk about in there is that Emma had, uh, was, um, had issues, big issues of, of depression. Um, can you share a little about this from the story and talk about how the therapy can help somebody who is suffering from depression that, you know, can go all gamuts, I guess, of a spectrum there. Um, right. So uh, when I first meet someone and perhaps when I ask them, you know, what are your goals in therapy? And they talk about depression um, or even anxiety, which is very common um, these days. One of the things that I'll do is I'll, I'll check in with them and make sure that some of the basics are in place. For, because if the nutrition isn't good or if their sleep is out of whack or they don't get exercise, um, you know, those are some of the basics that need to be in place 
when uh, people are assessed about depression. And then I'll often also um, ask them if they've been and had a checkup lately, because as you probably know, depression can be caused by organic issues as well. You know, if someone's thyroid isn't working properly, they'll often show up as depressed, whereas perhaps it's really a thyroid issue. And so I make sure that people have had a physical um, to make sure that I'm not treating someone uh, for depression when their etiology of the depression might have um, physical um, underpinnings. And so that's where it starts. And then a lot of times, like I was saying earlier, I really do um, a lot of exploring of not only what are the current issues that are going on that cause their depression, but how are they thinking and how, how can they change their thoughts so that they get out of the habit of being so negative? And what are they doing to bring joy into their lives? Because so many people are in a rut. You know, they go to work, they come home, they eat dinner, they watch TV, they go to bed. They get up, they go to work, they come home, eat dinner, watch TV, go to bed. And so I try and look at a person's life in a holistic way. Where's your community? Who are you spending time with? What are you doing in your life to bring you some joy? Are you getting outside? You know, the Japanese, they have a, an expression, they call it forest bathing, which allows people to feel good, to, to release their anxiety, to diminish their stress. You know, what other aspects of their lives are out of whack that would be contributing to their depression. So that's sort of how I go after it. You know, what that uh, makes me think about is, can you, can you talk a little bit about what, I mean, what depression is? I mean, what it, I mean, I'm sure it looks different in different people, but what it, what it, you know, how it manifests itself or. It's a diminishment of energy. It's a lock, a lack of motivation. It's a, uh, a sense of, being tired all the time, not having enthusiasm for life, um, feeling like they, they're um, isolated and um, just a, a diminishment of any sense of being able to experience normal pleasures. Uh, people who are depressed will often have disrupted sleep. Uh, they might uh, overeat or take other substances to not feel their, their sadness. Um, you know, sometimes people are grieving and they think it's depression, but it's grief. So as a therapist looking at, you know, making a differential diagnosis of is this, is this depression or is this person reacting to situations in their life that would be more like grief? And so, you know, just kind of taking all those symptoms into consideration, I, I would say that would be the main way to describe depression. And you know, even now, you know, there are all these SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and other medications that go after neurotransmitters. But I don't know that there's a clear understanding exactly of what goes on in the brain with depression. I got you. It's, you know, I think it's the, the word gets used so much that, uh, you know, someone might bandy about and say, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like this or I'm feeling like that. And they, they might use the word, but I just, just wanted to, talk and I appreciate you going there about uh, what it might might be as opposed well, and everybody feels as uh feels sad from time to time I mean there are things in the world that are going on certainly always right now there's so many things happening that could make us sad I was in tears yesterday when I heard some stories on the news about what's going on over um in Israel and Gaza and so I mean there's there are circumstances that make us justifiably sad but that's different from depression Depression is usually a sadness that doesn't go away. 
it, it's usually something that lasts for weeks or months or sometimes even years um, that needs to be addressed. And, you know, a lot of times people mask their depression with uh, distraction. They'll, like I was saying earlier, they might drink too much or eat too much or take take medications to self-medicate, not the antidepressants, but other things. And so um, there are ways that people sometimes have a hard time recognizing depression because they're they're distracting themselves from it. It, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's something that, uh, and I, I would think that's what makes it worse then is you're trying to distract yourself, but not really dealing with the fact that it exists. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, uh, your book is a story of triumph, bravery, and healing, but not all therapist-patient interactions end that way. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Well, what was great about uh, Emma in this book, Overcoming, is that she was willing to trust me. And it took a while, but the trust is a core ingredient of any good relationship, whether it's a, it's a couple or uh, children and their parents or teachers and their students, um, there needs to be an element of trust. And sometimes people come into therapy and they don't establish that trusting relationship. So that can sabotage good therapy. Um, or sometimes they're not willing to stick it out. I mean, I, I was trained as, as a short-term therapist, meaning most sessions are maybe, oh gosh, maybe eight sessions and that's about it. But with Emma, she was a long-term client. And I think one of the things that made it successful was she was willing to stick it out. There were many times where she perhaps wanted to quit because it was too hard or or other other objections that she had, but her willingness to stay in the game and really work on it was one of the main ingredients of our success. The, uh, you know, when I would think that sometimes uh, when you're working with somebody and especially in the situation, you know, you mentioned that she was, pretty much threatened in order to get therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, would that make it more difficult than easy for a person as opposed to the person who seeks help or, you know, is, I mean, is, yeah, did that alone sure. have its own ramifications? <laughs> I know. I mean, this is the less than ideal situation for somebody to be threatened to come into therapy. And you can only imagine how much resistance that would create. Um, in the beginning. And I don't want to give it away because in the very first chapter, I talk about how that resistance manifested itself in my seeing her. Um, but it was extreme behavior that showed up in my office when she first started coming in. Um, you know, you mostly see resistance when people are threatened, when uh, perhaps parents tell their teenagers, you know, you've got to get into therapy. And, you know, the teenagers come in thinking, well, you know, everybody's blaming me. There's something wrong here. So, so you know, that, that becomes a little bit of an issue. Obviously, the person that seeks therapy, the one that knows that they've got something they need to work on, those are the best clients to have because they're here because they really want to be. It did turn around, though, in, in overcoming. She did want to come after we established that trust. It just took a while because of the way she was brought in. Gotcha. Do you, do you ever have a, have you ever had a client who comes in for whatever reason, um, but is seeking to tell you what you, they think you want them to say, as opposed to actually participating or. Yeah, I think that happens. And, and um, it's something that the more experienced one has as a therapist, 
um, the more you realize that this is exactly what's going on. It's probably what you faced too. Uh, were you uh, a, a school teacher at first and then went into administration? Yes, exactly. You could probably smell out the BS pretty quickly after you've had a few years of experience. Yeah. It's kind of that way in therapy too. Gotcha. And yes, you are correct. That's one of the one of the things that uh, when you're because uh, I went from teacher to assistant principal to principal, and uh, you know it, it is one of the things that uh, when you're sitting with a student who there's something that they've done, and you say to them, um, "Okay, I." I must have a neon sign on top of my head and they look up there and <laughs> you go, uh, you know, cause you're obviously, it says lie to me <laughs> or, you know, I'd say something like that. And they go, Oh, you're funny. I say, yeah. So tell me the truth. Cause you're not right now. You know, and it's, um, and I can only imagine the same thing if with therapy, when you can tell when they're, it's like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or sometimes um, in the past I've had couples come in where perhaps they are just coming in for the optics that they both know things are over or one certainly one of them does, but they're just coming in to be able to say, well, we did everything, you know, we did therapy. Um, and so that happens sometimes too. I got you that, you know what? <laughs> I can imagine. I, I really can. I, I, it, where somebody says, fine, I'll go to therapy, but you know, they're not really, they're, not, they're not, their heart's not in it. Yeah. When, when uh, um, what are some of the common ways that you get referrals? What, uh, I mean, is it from an, uh, um, you know, like a doc, uh, another doctor or is it from? A lot of times it's through word of mouth these days. I do have a fair amount of, of uh, docs that refer to me uh, because I've been in town long enough. Um, I'm fairly well known as a psychologist here in Scottsdale. Uh, but I would say most of my referrals come from other clients. And that's, that's a compliment, you know, obviously. That's, that's awesome. That's, you know, cause as a principal, by the way, I, I had to take someone to go see a therapist. I I called up the district. We were having, the person had uh, combined the wrong medications together. And I found out as a result of things that were happening in her life. And I, Mm -hmm. and I said, you know, I can't make you do this or anything like that, which is different from what your patient um, had, but I literally called up the county and I said, I know you normally do this for kids, but I, I got some, I got a teacher who needs to see somebody and it needs to happen now. Cause she's, there's something going on in her world. And I actually took her there. They, you know, it's uh good for you. I hope that worked out. It did actually. It, uh, she yeah. started confronting what the problems were as opposed mm-hmm. to holding them inside. And, and they ended up setting her up with a, a regular therapist and so forth. And uh, I think that really paid off for her cause she was, she was someone who was feeling like all the troubles of the world were on her shoulders and there was nobody mm-hmm. there to help her deal with it. And well, it's great that you recognize that she needed the help and got her to where she needed to be. And that really worked out well. That's cool. Thanks. It was a rough couple of days that made you go. <laughs> it's like a slap upside the face. It's like, all right, she's not normal. This is not what she don't normally does. We got to talk. And then it was almost too late with the self-medication mm-hmm. stuff happening. But, you know, mm-hmm. it's, but I, Appreciate it. I, I think, you know, part of where I'm driving this conversation is the idea that it, I, I think this means that sometimes we, you know, we get caught up in our own worlds, but we really need to get to know our, the people that we work with <laughs> so that you do recognize when something may not be right. Absolutely. And I think that it's tough these days because our lives are all so complicated and busy and 
And I think that a lot of the relationships that that we would uh, want to enjoy and uh, that would help us thrive often are hard to cultivate because people are going in so many different directions, whether it's parents, uh, you know, taking their kids to so many activities and not bonding with other parents or teachers, having their own obligations after the school day to take care of their families and maybe not spending as much time with each other. I think having a strong sense of relationships with our colleagues, our neighbors, our friends really is helpful. And it's tough these days because I think people are much more fractured uh, than they used to be. So agree. And it's so strange with all the different ways we have of staying in contact with people. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but superficial contact, right? I mean, right. people are looking at each other on Instagram or Facebook and seeing little snippets of some fun little moment, but it's not really being in connection. You know, how many meaningful conversations do you have a week with people who really get you and understand you? And that's a question that I will often ask my clients because we know that people who are connected and really feel a strong sense of community, they live longer and they are healthier. It's good to know. That's, uh, you know, I, I just know that with all the, the things going on and, you know, whatever people do in their lives, there's all kinds of reasons for everything from death of a f- family member to, uh, um, you know, kids doing what kids do to, you know, d- dealing with work issues and challenges and, and then just feeling like you're helpless and dealing with world events and things outside your own world. And I know. And then it takes effort to cultivate and keep our friendships meaningful and deep. And a lot of times people come home and they feel so spent that the last thing they want to do is now, you know, call somebody or go out and meet someone. They just want to go home and veg out. Um, And that's a problem because that increases that isolation that we're talking about because it takes effort to make and sustain meaningful relationships. That it does. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, You know, um, Angela, we're getting close to finishing up. Uh, uh, before we do that, if someone wanted to follow up and connect with you and or learn more, where would you send them? Well, they could go to my website, which is artoftransformation.com and uh, learn more about me there. I also have uh, several recordings that I made years ago when CDs were still something that people listened to. And, and uh, so those recordings are on my website for people who might be experiencing anxiety um, I've got some great recordings for uh, managing anxiety. Some are uh, recordings of different types of breathing exercises. Some are guided imagery. Um, there's one I particularly enjoy, which is called the body scan. So when people start to listen to those kind of recordings on a daily basis, it's, it's a type of meditation, they can actually uh, lower their stress levels. And so that's one way that people can, um, can find me. And then um, my book is available on Amazon, both in um, audio and the written um, version, and also on Kindle. So that would be another way if people were interested in in reading the story of overcoming. Awesome. The, uh, uh, I've got last two questions I'd like to ask my guests. And uh, first one goes like this. How do you overcome feeling like you want to quit or give up? I mean, things are going on so much. What What stops you from saying, oh, I'm done with this and just giving up on something. I know you're talking about what might be called burnout or <laughs> yes. fatigue, yes. emotional fatigue. Exactly. And so I am really good about recharging my batteries. I 
take art classes. I get outside every week. I mean, it's been incredibly hot here, but now the, the heat's finally diminishing and it allows us to be outside more. Um, I exercise, I work out, I, I do yoga. Um, so I do things that recharge me that keeps my energy up. And that's probably the biggest thing I do. And, and, you know, like I was saying earlier, community is so important. I try every week to meet with a friend or two to have meaningful interactions so that I feel connected. I mean, I love my work and I have very meaningful interactions with my clients, but they're my clients. So it's more one way. I'm not going to, going to open up to them about things that I might need to talk about. So making sure I have those uh, meaningful conversations is also very recharging. Awesome. Uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who wasn't? What would you say if given the chance to say thank you? You know, I was just yesterday, I don't know what prompted this. Maybe it was knowing that I was going to be talking to you and that you're an educator. But yesterday I was driving and I was thinking, I remember every one of my grade school teachers, I remember their names and the special moments that I experienced with them. So the foundation of loving school and knowing that I was truly cared about was phenomenal for me. And I was thinking today, you know, the teachers that I had in elementary school, they probably on a daily basis spent as much time with me as my parents did. They knew me. And that was a real great foundation for feeling worthy and feeling like, like I mattered. And then when I got to, um, to high school, there was one particular teacher, her name was Mrs. Wilson, and she was a French teacher. And I had gone through a bout of depression in high school that was pretty severe, and she recognized it. And she spent extra time with me. She she was so, so warm and caring. And I think she was instrumental in helping me know that I mattered and, uh, you know, also letting me know that the better days were ahead. And, and she was just uh, a very, very special person in my life. So I would say Mrs. Wilson for sure in high school. And then of course, in, in college and graduate school, there were also some of my favorites and, and the qualities that, that they had that meant so much to me is they saw me, they got to know me and they validated me and made me feel like I could do, I could be someone. That's awesome. That really is. It's uh it's amazing, especially when people don't realize that they can have that that sort of uh, impact, I guess. Is well, and sometimes it only takes one. Right. You know, you hear stories all the time of people who I had this particular teacher who saw me and then encouraged me, and that's what got me through. So I think it's really, really true that we don't need tons of people, but if we have at least that one special teacher or that one, in my case, the therapist, I was the therapist that believed in my client. It can make all the difference. So awesome. Uh, Angela, thank you so much for sharing your book, Overcoming. Um, what an awesome story of change and, uh, and showing the power of uh, therapy. Um, wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate our time together and it was nice to get to know you and, and to have me on your show. Thanks so much. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. 
Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.